Hello, and welcome to Our Foundations. My name is Joshua. Today's episode is our themes episode on the current series on agorism. And for this themes episode, we are going to focus on some examples that really live out the concept of agorism. We're going to look at some individuals and uh, groups of individuals. So we've got Lily Forrester and John Galton will be our first little story. Then after that, we'll get into Cody Wilson and the things that he has done. And then we'll get into the Free State Project and talk about what that is and what the goals are and that kind of stuff. I will wrap it up with a little bit about Amir Taki and his philosophy and combine that with the sociologist Sorokin and some thoughts of my own and try to tie together a lot of this from a more meta-theoretical perspective so that should be interesting. So that's our rough outline. Today's episode will be probably slightly shorter than normal because that's not a whole lot of stuff. I had another one I wanted to cover and then got some conflicting information and so I didn't want to present that without knowing 100% what the facts were because there were people on both sides that were saying two different things and I was not able to figure that out so I just cut out that section. So let's start off with Lily Forrester and John Galton. They are a couple who are definitely libertarian, if not just total anarchist in their beliefs. They promoted a message of taxation is theft and all drugs should be legal and governments and states have no right to punish people for victimless crimes. These are the ideas that they tried to promote and talked about with lots of people, but in action, what they were really trying to promote is true entrepreneurship. John Galton wanted to be a self-made man, an entrepreneur, take care of himself. They both wanted to live completely off the grid, and they did so to an extent. When they were in the States, what they did is they began being what they called debanked in 2012, and what that meant was that they basically pulled all their money out of any fiat sources, out of any bank, and they went 100% into crypto. And so they used cryptocurrencies, mainly Bitcoin, and that's all that they transacted in from then on. So that's pretty interesting. We've talked about crypto. We'll get into that in a later series specifically, but that's one thing they did. They also did not have a permanent residence, so they kind of moved around, lived at different places. At one point in time, they were in Detroit, and they went to areas of town that were basically just abandoned, and they were squatters at different houses. They started gardens. They grew marijuana as well as vegetables and things like that. They learned how to do solar arrays and power the things they needed to power through that and basically lived totally off the grid on their own outside of the realm of the state, which is agorism. So we may not agree with everything that they did, but they are at least a good example of people living out this agorist philosophy in action. The big turning point for them was that, I believe it was in Detroit, they got arrested and they got busted with um, a few combinations of things that in that state end up being a felony. And so I think they had some propane and maybe some marijuana or a pipe and some resin and a lighter. It was some weird combination of things that according to a law that's in effect there, it's an automatic federal crime. 
and they were arrested and thrown into jail. Now, Lily ended up getting bailed out, and then later, John did as well, but they had this problem where they didn't agree with these laws and didn't want to live by these laws. They did not hurt anybody. They were just doing things on their own, and they felt like they shouldn't be put in jail for a few decades for doing basically no harm to anyone else. And so what they decided was they were going to go on the run. And where would they go? Well, you got to leave the country. That's about the only option. What's the best country? Well, the easiest, at least, would be Mexico. They wanted to get away from states in general, and they felt like Mexico was somewhere that they could go where they could mostly accomplish this. And so they set out to go into Mexico, and they were going to Acapulco, and there was already an anarchist community that lived there. So they set out and went in. They had to cross the border illegally. They got a friend to drive a pickup truck, and they took some money for a bribe. It was pretty much the last money they had or had access to, and they paid a bribe, and they hid in the pickup truck, and they got across the border into Mexico, and they found a place to live. They rented a big house up on a hill that was a little on the outskirts of the city, and they set up shop there. They did lots of different things. So John Galton was a big promoter of cryptocurrencies. He held crypto classes where he helped teach people about different things related to cryptocurrency and blockchain and that kind of stuff. Lily was specifically into things like gardening and growing food. They both were into growing marijuana as well. And Lily did a lot of crafts and stuff. They built a solar setup at their little homestead there in Mexico. They had chickens. They were growing their own food. They sold their crafts. They did the crypto classes. They had all different kinds of things that they did. And they were basically living the lifestyle that they wanted to live. They were off the grid. They were essentially stateless. And they kind of did what they wanted. They made their own money and they were entrepreneurs. And in addition to these individual things that they would do and sell and raise money through, Lily also hosted meals. So she would cook more traditional American meals. And then usually a lot of expats would come up and they would dine with them at their house. And they would charge a small amount for everyone who came. They would all pitch in and she would cook the meal and serve a meal for them and serve dinner. And so they got to host lots of different people. They got to provide these meals and what felt like good home cooking for people that probably hadn't had access to that there in that part of Mexico. And so they did that. And that was another entrepreneurial venture that they did. And so again, in general, things were going fairly well. They were part of a group called Anarcho Poco. And that is an event that's held every year in Acapulco with people that are libertarian-minded or anarchists or minarchists or whatever brand of libertarian you want to be or stateless person, however you want to categorize yourself. But there is this meetup every year there where thousands of people come and they basically talk about and celebrate and party and do all things related to anarchism and libertarianism. And that's what they do. And so John and Lily were a part of this group, but they did have some conflicts. There were people that they clashed with. There was one person in particular that lived with them for a while. He ended up leaving. I believe they forced him to leave, and he was into some stuff that they did not agree with. And later, it turned out that this might have been a much bigger deal than they realized. What happened 
it seems, and I don't know for sure, again, this is another one where there's some conflicting stories, but the way it seems, and I, I feel fairly confident in presenting this because it does seem like this is the case, um, and I won't get into detail, so I shouldn't err, and what it seems happened is that this person that they had kicked out of their house a while ago, they went out and they were involved with one of the cartels. And so apparently around there, obviously you've got the cartels and they're very dangerous. But apparently as long as you are not dealing in any of the harder drugs like cocaine or heroin or something like that, if you're just dealing with marijuana and you're kind of keeping to yourself and you're not bothering their drug trade or getting them in trouble or anything like that, then they leave you alone. They basically have better things to do and uh, maybe not better, but they have other things to do that are more important to them. Well, what happened though was that John and Lily had basically made an enemy with someone that had some connections to the cartels, and this person apparently told the connection they had that Lily and John were selling cocaine out of their house up on the hill, and so basically they were competition to the cartel and they were going against them. And so what happened was one day after John and Lily and they had another friend there, as soon as they got done eating one day, there were men at their gate that were coming out their driveway and they went out to see what was going on and the people opened fire. They ended up shooting and killing John and they shot and wounded the other man that was there and Lily did not get shot. But her and the wounded guy ended up going inside, hiding in a room, waiting it out for a while, and sure enough, the people just left. And it looked like it was a few young people, so it was probably just people the cartel had on the very lower levels, and they were just told, hey, go to this place, shoot these people, and leave, and send them a message kind of a thing, and that's what they did. So obviously, this was very traumatic. Lily, like I said, got away, and the other man that was there, he ended up recovering and got away as well, but John, you know, did not. So then Lily had to relocate and go away somewhere else and basically hide out for a little while. Technically, she was still kind of on the run and didn't want to be involved with this, and there was... There's a lot of corruption with the Mexican police and cartels involved. That's probably not something that really anybody wants to get involved with. So she basically skipped town and relocated somewhere else where she is now continuing to live out the agorist lifestyle and overall is recovering from the trauma and the events that took place and trying to basically get back on her feet, get back into things. She is currently doing some work with the things that she did before. She has her own website and sells stuff as well. I believe she's getting back into growing things, and she's working with Renegade University, which is an organization that does classes and teaches things related to mainly agorism. Basically, how do you live off the grid? How do you deal with um, making your own energy, growing your own food, being an entrepreneur, lots of entrepreneurship type ideas, things like that. And that's what types of classes um, are hosted by Renegade University. And Lily is teaching some of those specifically and doing some other stuff. So basically, that's it. That's where it is now. That is not a story that really turned out very well in a way, but it happened nonetheless. Moving on, we'll get to Cody Wilson. Now, Cody Wilson started a company called Defense Distributed, and he raised funds originally to design a 3D printed gun. 
he ended up raising the funds for that and did create a design and created a 3D printed gun. As you can imagine, though, the government was not very happy about this. They did not want 3D printed guns to be available where anybody could have access to a firearm. They definitely want to control access to firearms. However, from an Agorist perspective, everyone should have the right to whatever property that they want and to be able to defend their property regardless of what the government says about that. So, this is definitely on the side of agorism. The other thing that Cody Wilson worked on was something called Dark Wallet. So he and a man named Amir Taki, they were designing Dark Wallet, which was a digital wallet to hold Bitcoin, and it was one that would make everything totally anonymous so that you could have private transactions completely because technically Bitcoin is not completely private. And so they were designing a wallet that would basically fix this issue. Alongside that, they were going to create something called Dark Market, where it would be a totally independent marketplace where people could buy and sell things together using crypto, and it was also anonymous and private. Now, they ended up having to postpone the work on this stuff. Amir went off to do some other things, and Cody was tied up with Defense Distributed and lawsuits and things like that. And so that project got put on hold. Currently, Amir Taki is in the UK and not allowed to leave right now. So that's, as far as I understand, when he is finally able to leave and come back to America, they're going to work on this project again and get it wrapped up and hopefully have a product for that. Now, the dark market aspect actually did kind of get used. So there is an offshoot of dark market that turned into Open Bazaar, which is a platform that I've mentioned before. And that's one that currently exists. We have a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace, usually done with crypto. And to a degree, it has anonymous aspects. So that's something that there is a version of the product that got out, but it is definitely not the dark market that Cody and Amir were working on. So that was one other aspect that they were getting into is how do you have marketplaces and money that are totally outside of the system. But the main thing that Cody Wilson is known for is the 3D printed gun. Now, the government did end up totally shutting down the website at one point. They made these gun designs illegal to distribute, and Cody has been involved in a long lawsuit from that. So basically, his defense here is that it's a constitutional rights issue, so everybody has the right to free speech. If I create a design for something, then I have the right to distribute that. If I write information, I have the right to distribute that, regardless of what that information is or what that design is. That's a free speech issue. And so he compiles with that the fact that everyone has the right to bear arms, the Second Amendment. So if you combine the First Amendment, especially when it's in regards to the Second Amendment, then there are two different constitutional rights that he feels are being violated. And so this is something that is going up through the court system, at least as of this recording, it has not been solved yet. However, despite the government shutting down these gun designs and putting a halt to it and initiating legislation against it, the designs did get out. Not only did they get out, but now there are many more designs for 3D printed guns. 3D printed guns is another thing I have mentioned before in these Agorism episodes. And so, yes, you can get 
lots of different types of 3D printed guns. There are some that are like Uzis. There are some that that are more one-shot pistols. There are some that are just like a Glock. You can make the majority of an AR-15, I think about 80% of it you can make out of 3D printed parts, and then you just buy a few of the metal parts and you can assemble it and have an AR-15. So there are lots of different options if you want a gun but don't want to have that on record or go through the system or ask the government for permission first. If you just want one and you want to buy one and you're not worried about the laws and regulations around it, then basically anybody has access to that. This first gun that Cody created was a one-shot pistol and he called it the Liberator. So the idea behind that is that during World War II, the United States made a bunch of one-shot pistols that shot a 45 caliber round, but just one single shot, and this gun was called the Liberator. And they dropped it behind enemy lines and occupied territory and basically gave the civilians the ability to fight back and gave resistance groups the ability to have some sort of pistol, some sort of gun so that they can actually do something or defend themselves or go on the offensive, whatever they could do. And that was the plan. So the U.S. made all kinds of these guns and they basically dumped them off in occupied territory. And that was the idea is to give people the ability to fight back and defend themselves. And so that was kind of what Cody Wilson felt like he was trying to do is give all citizens all around the world the access and the ability to access arms so that they can defend themselves and they can fight back if they're being oppressed or if they are under a corrupt government or whatever the case may be. And that's what he was doing. So he felt like that was the right thing to do. The government disagrees and they are currently battling it out. We will see what happens there. I will not speculate on how that will go. We'll just have to see. So, Moving on, the next thing that I wanted to cover was the Free State Project. So the way this started was that there was an essay written by Jason Sorens in 2001, and he wrote this essay talking about how to have a libertarian society in today's world in the United States. And his thesis was that if you got 20,000 people that believed these political views and that were libertarians and they all moved to one location in a small state, they would be able to hold enough political power to actually change things and start to institute a more libertarian society in the current United States. The goal, at least as of this essay, was to eventually secede from the United States and be a stateless and free state or location, whatever you want to call it. And that was the goal, at least the way he proposed it in the essay. Currently, I do not believe they say that they have plans to secede, but that was at least in the original paperwork. So what ended up happening is something got posted online under the name of the Free State Project, and the way it worked was that people could sign up and pledge to move down there. And so all types of libertarians and anarchists would pledge that when 20,000 people had signed up for this, that they would move to whatever the chosen location was, and they would do it within, I believe it was within five years, if I remember right. And sure enough, there were 20,000 people, more than that, that ended up signing up over the course of a few years. 
And when that happened, people did start moving. The state that was chosen was New Hampshire. So there were a few options on the table, and New Hampshire by far was the one that most people in the group that had pledged wanted to go to and they felt good about. So that's where they went. And now New Hampshire has probably more libertarians than any other state in the United States. And they have elected the most libertarian politicians out of any state in the U.S. They have the fewest regulations. It is the friendliest state as far as regulations are concerned for businesses in the United States. And there is all kinds of agorist activity and entrepreneurship that is going on there now because most of these people have these types of views. They are libertarians, they are agorists, they are anarchists, and they are all living in close proximity in this geographic area of New Hampshire and trying to actually make a difference, trying to do things. Most stores around there will accept cryptocurrencies, so cryptocurrencies have a lot of use around there. There are quite a few blockchain and cryptocurrency startups that are located in New Hampshire there. There are many different libertarian outlets. There are websites and podcasts and all types of things that are produced out of New Hampshire as well. They have kind of a cool thing that is done in the city there, and they call it Robin Hooding. And so what it is is that when people pay to park at a parking meter, they are essentially funding the state. The state makes money on that. But the way they make money on that is when people let their parking meters expire, then the people get a ticket. When they pay that ticket, that extra money is the profit that the state gets. So the state doesn't necessarily make any money off of having parking meters per se, because most of the money they make from that goes into maintaining the parking meters and paying someone to monitor the parking meters and all the bureaucracy. So the profits come from writing tickets for people that have their parking meters expire. So there are groups that are in New Hampshire, and I, I heard reports that they're in other places, but I didn't find any hard evidence on that. But I know at least in New Hampshire, there are groups that do this, and they will go around, they will try to get basically right in front of the parking police people, whatever they're called, and they'll go through and add money to every parking meter that's expired. So as the parking police come through, they can't write any tickets because there are no expired meters. And so these people will go ahead of them. They'll pay all these parking meters, you know, any random ones that have expired. And then the state doesn't get to collect their money. These Robin Hooders have locations where people can send donations to. So what they'll do is they'll leave a little card on someone's car if they paid their meter for them. And if that person is so inclined, they can give donations. Oftentimes people run by with a roll of quarters or some change and drop it off to them. And they apparently get more money than what they use to cover these expired parking meters. And so they are able to take care of this problem, defund the state, and make money all at the same time. So that is quite an agorist feat that is actionable right now. And that goes with the saying for the Free State Project, which is, live free in our lifetime. That is their goal, is to do it today, do it in this generation, so that you can have freedom somewhere without it just being theory and instead actually have it actionable in a physical location where people live freely. 
There also is a festival that occurs here that is hosted by the Free State Project, and that is Porkfest, which stands for Porcupine Festival. And it is another libertarian festival where anyone can go and they hold lectures and talks and debates and panels. There is entertainment, there are bonfires, there's camping, all kinds of stuff, and pretty much anything goes. It's libertarian. They don't really have many crime issues. It's not what you would think of if you watch a movie and some place has gone to total anarchism and everybody's killing each other. That's not really the way it is. But there are people that are walking around with, say, an AK-47 over their shoulder or a sword at their hilt or whatever. And there are people, I'm sure, that might be using substances that other people may not agree with. There is probably a lot of activity that goes on there of different types. And if you don't like it, then don't hang out around those people. And basically, everybody acts in a voluntary manner around each other, and that's the way they feel society should be. So that's another interesting example of agorism that is occurring currently. As you think about these examples that I've given, from Lily Forrester and John Galton to... Cody Wilson to the Free State Project and then to Amir Taki and some of that philosophy, it should help you to see that there is a lot going on and a lot of possibilities when it comes to putting agorism into practice. It can go from your individual life to things that help a lot of other people to blowback from the state or from criminals. It can be theory and it can be philosophy. It can be so many different things. All of these things that I cover today are examples of agorism in action, but they're all very different. Most of them have different results. You have everything from a man being murdered to Cody Wilson being wrapped up in court cases and being shut down by the government to the Free State Project, where they're being actually very successful, people living happily. They are starting to be more and more free through legitimate means. And you have Amir Taki talking about philosophy and examples of Rojava that are actually working as well and talking about creating plans and having a unifying ideology and this kind of stuff. So basically, I want to give this perspective that it's a very wide range when you get into something like agorism. It's a mindset, it's a philosophy, and when you put it into action, it can look like many, many different things. There is no set way of doing this. So when you think of trying to apply some of these concepts and ideas, just know that you should do what works for you. And that might look very different than what would work for somebody else. You might just apply a few things. You might apply a lot of things. You might have a huge impact on thousands of people or millions of people. You might just have a huge impact on yourself or on you and your family or on a few friends. Just keep in mind that there are consequences. The government does not like it when its citizens try to break away. They do not take kindly to that. You also have the lack of protection from the state. If you are trying to not rely on the state, then not only are you not relying on them for your means of survival and your economic livelihood, but it's also things like protection. And just know that there are risks. The idea is that you choose how to manage those risks. You choose how to educate yourself and fund the management of those risks and not the government doing it for you and forcing you to pay for it. So 
in theory, that can work very well, and it does work very well. And in practice, there are times when it works very well. But also, there are times when it does not work out so well, and there are severe consequences. So again, there are examples of people being thrown in jail for plenty of victimless crimes, for things like tax evasion, for drug use, for all kinds of stuff. And so if you're living out an agorist philosophy and lifestyle that includes some of these types of things, just know that there are risks and do take that into account. Do have a plan put in place and some adjustments in your lifestyle for these risks, for protecting yourself, for making sure that everything will be taken care of in case someone comes after you, whether it be someone for the law or against the law, who knows which. And also make sure that if someone were to come after you, say the IRS comes after you for some reason, that they're not going to find anything bad. So whether that means you're just not participating in anything that is technically illegal, or whether that means that any participation is something that can't later be tracked, whatever approach you want to take that applies best for you, I just recommend that you take all of this into account, that you don't just apply some of this stuff offhand without really planning, without really thinking about it, and without really taking into consideration all of these risks. Before wrapping up, I want to go back and touch on someone else that was mentioned earlier, and that would be Amir Taki. So I mentioned Amir Taki is working with Cody Wilson for the Dark Wallet Project and Dark Market Project, but Amir Taki has been involved in a lot more. He is a self-proclaimed anarchist. He's got all kinds of videos that he's posted, a lot of projects that he's worked on. He was a very early Bitcoin developer and has been involved in a lot of very interesting stuff, especially in the anarchist and agorist communities. So he is another good example. One of the most interesting things, I believe, and what connects with our next episode coming up is that he heard about this stateless region that declared autonomy in northern Syria. He said it really got his attention and drew him in, and he felt like he had to go. He had to see it. He had to be involved. He had to help. He had to do something, and sure enough, he did. He went to northern Syria and got involved in this community. Rojava is the name, and we will cover that community in the next episode. That's a very interesting example of setting up an agorist community, a stateless community, and it's, yeah, actually been fairly successful. But Amir Taki actually signed up with them. He uh, decided to fight. He fought against ISIS soldiers there and was part of one of the militias there in Rojava. And he also got on one of the economic councils and helped with economic issues there and designing plans and talking about everything related to setting up an economy in this new autonomous zone. It's actually kind of anti-capitalist, so it's a little interesting. And yeah, he went over there, helped out with that, fought ISIS, and then came back. And he's been all over the place. He's traveled around the UK, staying in abandoned warehouses. He's come to the US and, again, worked with Cody Wilson and some other people. He's done a lot of very interesting things. He's a very interesting man. If you listen to some interviews that he has done or videos he's posted, he's a little extreme sometimes, but especially if you hear him talk about political theory, that's what really caught my attention specifically. And 
So I wanted to mention that first here before I get into Rojava because I'll mention something related to this and that's kind of what they're based on. So I want to at least give kind of an introduction to some of these concepts first. And th the main one is that of ideology. So Amir Taki says that the reason Rojava has been a successful stateless society when every other stateless society in history has either not had this scope or did not end up lasting very long at all. And he said the main thing is ideology, that they have an ideology that they all believe in, they all follow, and they are united behind. They believe that people should be free. They believe that the state shouldn't exist, that people should live in community with one another and help one another. And they are very strong in these beliefs. So Amir contrasts Rojava with Egypt. So during the Arab Spring, the citizens basically rose up against the Egyptian government, which they believed was corrupt and oppressive, and they overthrew the government. So this was a successful uprising of the people with a movement toward liberty and freedom, and that was the ideology behind the Arab Spring. The problem was that they weren't very firm on specifically what their ideology was. They also didn't really have a plan on what to do once they overthrew the government. So they ended up overthrowing the government, but basically it got replaced by someone worse, and the Muslim Brotherhood stepped in and took a lot of the roles that the government was playing. And so those involved in the Arab Spring that were behind freedom and liberty basically did not get their way. Even though they successfully overthrew the government, basically nothing became of it. There was not this stateless society that sprang up in Egypt. It didn't happen. And the main reason was because they didn't have a unified ideology and they did not have a plan set up for what to do after the government was gone. And in contrast, in Rojava, the majority ethnic group are the Kurds. And I'll get into a little more detail in this in the next episode when I talk about Rojava specifically. But what Amir talks about is how these Kurds are mountainous people and they live in the mountains. They've lived on the outskirts. They've been basically oppressed and kicked out of all the countries around there, out of Turkey, out of Iran, out of Syria, and no one likes them, no one wants them is kind of the idea. But what they do, at least according to Amir in their spare time, is study political philosophy. He said when he went down there, pretty much every single person he ran into was more fluent in political philosophy than he was, and he considered himself to be very well-versed in political philosophy of all different types. And he said they were even more educated than he was, and that this was part of their pastime. They educated themselves. They're very interested in this, and it was something that they really believed in. They wanted to be their own society and their own peoples, and they believed in freedom and liberty. So it's not just Kurds. There are plenty of other ethnic groups, and they really wanted freedom and liberty to the extent that they actually went for it. They actually took the time to educate themselves. They took the risk of declaring themselves autonomous. They have their own militias and all this stuff. But the way Amir talks about it is that it's all about ideology and that that is the number one thing is ideology. And when you pair that with education 
and you pair that with good planning, then you can actually have success. There's actually a chance of having free societies around the world. And this is just one example. And so when he talks about this, he talks about how all these other examples of uprisings and freedom movements and how they basically just petered out, never made it, they failed that this was the key issue here. They did not have a unified ideology that they all believed in, they were well-versed in and educated in, and they had a plan to carry out. This didn't exist. But in Rojava, it did. And so far, it's actually been successful. So it's really interesting. But Amir tries to apply this as well to the current status of other places like the UK, where he is based, or America and places like that, that if somebody wants freedom and liberty and they want to come out from under the governance of the state, then you have to have a common ideology. You have to have common beliefs that you and many others around you, people you are grouped with, people you are working with, that you all believe in and you're willing to fight for it, that you're willing to educate yourself in, that you can unite around and that you actually have a plan to carry out. That is the only way for a community, a group of people, or even individuals to actually live free in society. It's interesting if you pair Amir's philosophy on these things with the philosophy of the sociologist Sorokin. I've read a few quotes from him before. He is the one that talks about a sensate culture versus a culture focused on spirituality. So the way he talks about it, Sorokin, he talks about how all civilizations, they fluctuate between two states. They fluctuate between being focused on spiritual matters to being focused on more sensate matters, things related to the senses, pleasure of all different kinds, and that this is what happens. And necessarily, you start off with something that is very spiritual, so usually religious, and focused on things like virtue and morality and that kind of stuff. And as that society progresses, they start phasing out a lot of those spiritual beliefs and start to incorporate more materialistic things and pleasure-seeking and things like this. So the spiritual side basically starts to get corrupted from this. People are no longer focusing on morality and ethics and virtue, but instead they're focusing on doing whatever is going to make them happy or whatever is going to give them the most wealth or the most power or whatever. It's more things related to the senses. And necessarily, those are things that are going to be a little more selfish and self-centered. But that's what happens. And as you start to get that shift in society over sometimes years, sometimes decades, sometimes centuries, it depends on the civilization you look at, that as that happens, you start moving into a sensate culture where it doesn't really matter much about what you believe religiously and what you believe when it comes to morality. And in actuality, you know, who's to say that your morality is the right one? Maybe mine's the right one. Maybe this guy's is the right one. You know, who really cares? Let's just make sure that we seek after happiness and pleasure. And these things are good. So if you want morality, pleasure versus pain, that's the argument is that Yes, anything that causes pleasure is good. Anything that causes pain is bad. That is a sensate mentality. And paired with this comes materialism and consumerism and things like this. So people are, you know, necessarily trying to fill 
these desires for pleasure and what do you fill them with? Well, you fill them with people sometimes and relationships sometimes, but also with stuff, with material goods, with things that you can actually have and use and that make you feel better. You have lots of really good food. You have a nice house. In today's world, you would have a nice car, all kinds of things like this. But what Sorokin says is that over time, this sensate culture then basically also gets corrupted. So you have people that realize that there is a lack of spirituality. There is a lack of morality. There's a lack of ethics and that this isn't really good. You also have the fact that with everybody living for themselves, there's a lot of corruption. There's a lot of stuff that isn't really all that good that's going on in this civilization, in this society. And so basically you have the civilization end up crashing. It's not sustainable for everybody to just be seeking after the most they can get, not caring about anybody else, not really doing long-term planning, that kind of stuff. That's not sustainable for a society or a civilization when all resources are going into entertainment and materialistic goods that don't really produce anything or promote anything of value or push society and culture forward. So what happens is that that society, that sensate society, ends up crashing as well. And then in its place is this sense of spirituality or religion or morality, whatever you want to call it, and that becomes dominant again, and basically you start the cycle all over again. And so that's what Sorokin says is that you have these shifts that happen in society. So it's interesting that many different countries that are very religious end up having very strong bonds and they end up being very resilient to a lot of things. Whereas many countries that get into being more materialistic and consumeristic throughout history, that hasn't really gone well. You can look at the Greek city-states, for example, or look at the Roman Empire is probably the best example. And look at the shift there between how the Roman Empire first started and they wanted to establish order and justice and virtue was a big deal and they wanted the people to have a say and they wanted to enforce rights. There's all kinds of stuff that, you know, I would say is good. You know, objectively, I think those are good goals to have, but that over time, the Roman Empire became corrupted. They lost that sense of morality. They lost this seeking after virtue There wasn't really real religion that was going on. At first, you know, many people actually did want to honor the gods and really tried to do things. And then later on in the Roman Empire, you have people basically just giving lip service to the gods and that's all they cared about. They just wanted power and they wanted more of it. And they wanted wealth and they wanted women and they wanted men and they wanted all kinds of stuff. And then, yes, the inevitable crash and that didn't work out so well. But going back to Amir Taki and what he talks about related to political theory and ideology and that pushing movements and sustaining movements, you can apply that to Sorokin's model and complete the trifecta with our current situation in today's day and age. So you have Amir's views on ideology mainly, you have Sorokin's views on rotating between spiritual and sensate cultures, and then you have today's state, which I I think pretty much all of us would agree, we are more in a sensate culture today without any hardcore ideologies going on, at least in the Western world. And when you look at all those together, it seems that 
if these theories are correct and these people are actually seeing things that will happen, that we will have a crash of this sensate culture, that that is coming up. I think an economic crash is definitely going to happen. Now, whether it is something that will totally change society or not, who knows? We don't know. You know, this could be something that goes on for another thousand years. You never know. No one can see the future. But if we at least look at these theories and try to apply them and, you know, have some fun and see what would happen if this happens, well, basically, what we would have to do is make sure that we are prepared, that we have an ideology, that we are united under an ideology, that we have educated ourselves, that we have made ourselves not reliant on the state, not reliant on material goods and things like that, but rather reliant on ourselves and our community. And this is what agorism is. That's what agorism is promoting, is taking care of yourself, being self-dependent, not dependent on the government, and working outside of governmental systems. And again, if you look at what Sorokin says about a sensate culture and that eventually that crashes and you get back into the more spiritual culture... In today's day and age, you know, that could be something based on probably Christianity would have the best bet, but it could also just be more virtue and justice and morality overall. It doesn't necessarily have to be based on a religion. It can be based on a sense of community, on a sense of loving one another. And that would probably be probably the most likely in today's day and age, but you never know. Anything could happen. But the point is that there needs to be a focus on taking care of each other, on acting morally, on doing what's best for your fellow neighbor and them doing what's best for you, everybody working together, people taking care of themselves so that when the sensate culture finally crashes, that people do have an ideology. They are united. They do have a plan. People have educated themselves on things like political philosophy and economics and agorism, self-sufficiency, all this kind of stuff. And if this takes place, then you have at least a doable transition from the sensate culture to the more morality-focused culture, and that could happen. This could happen in our lifetimes. You know, who knows? You never know. But it's an interesting thought experiment either way, and so there you have it. There's some food for thought. Think about it. See what you think. Give me some feedback. I don't know. This is basically all off the top of my head on things that I have been thinking about and listening to lately, so... Hopefully, if nothing else, it's at least interesting, an interesting concept to think about, and maybe it can be practical. Maybe it can help motivate you to live in a chorist philosophy, at least to some extent, and start applying that in your life in some way, or in multiple ways, or in all ways. You never know. See what you can do. But that is all I am going to cover in today's episode. So... When you come back next time, for the next episode, we will talk about agorist communities. Specifically, we're mainly going to talk about the Bruderhof communities. And so they are based on Anabaptist beliefs off of Protestant Christianity. And they are, you might think of them kind of like the Amish or the Mennonites, but they're 
not necessarily to that extreme. They still use energy and have businesses and all kinds of stuff, but they're a very interesting one. And so I want to talk about them and their communities that they set up and their philosophy and ideology. Then I want to talk about Mexico and talk about that town that threw out the government and threw out the criminals. They threw out everybody and basically took care of themselves. And so I'll mention them. And then specifically, there's another area where people are starting to basically live out an agorist philosophy, but more from a communal standpoint. All of these examples are more communal. But the second group of Mexican communities have very interesting economic systems and a market and a monetary system that's not really a monetary system. It's it's pretty interesting. So I'll talk about that in a little more detail than some of the others, and then also get into Rojava. So I'll actually talk about what's really going on there more than just a zone that declared autonomy. And so we'll talk about how they've set up their society, what their ideology is, and how that basically is functioning currently. And the reason why I'm focusing on more communal examples in this upcoming episode is because in a few future episodes, we will be discussing anarcho-capitalism, and that's basically the opposite side of things. So the communal societies usually are more against, or at least not as friendly to capitalism in general, whereas anarcho-capitalism is the same idea of being stateless, taking care of yourself, freedom, liberty, all this good stuff, but it is heavily focused on capitalism. So we are going to basically cover some of the communal aspects of stateless societies and freedom and liberty, and then we'll talk about that from the other perspective when we get into anarcho-capitalism in a few episodes. And that one will also be extremely interesting. I'm actually going to go fairly deeply into anarcho-capitalist philosophy and theory, and that should be very interesting. So that's what's coming up. Come back next time for the episode on communities. If you have not done so yet, please do rate the podcast, leave a review. If you could send me an email with feedback, that's what I've been requesting a lot lately, and that is extremely helpful for me. If you want to follow on Twitter, you can. There's a link in the show notes for that. There is also my email address. There's also the website you can go to for more information about some of this stuff I talk about on the podcast. And there is also a link to the Patreon page. So if you want to financially support me and support this podcast, you are welcome to, and it would be greatly appreciated. So you can do so through the Patreon page and get a few perks when you do that. So the link for that is also in the show notes. And I think that's about it. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you for supporting this podcast in whatever way that you do. It is very helpful, very appreciated. And with that, I'm out. Peace. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.